I saw fair. I didn't see him. Would he felt him? Tell me about that. I won't. I won't. <laughs> you would run. You would run away then if I told you. Well, I'm not afraid of fairies. I know you aren't, and I haven't either. But there it is. Well, tell us how that happened. I won't. I won't tell it to you. No. Why is there a secret attached to it? Well, there is. There is, mind you. There is. But don't forget, they all said Irishmen talking to fairies, but they're in it. And do you believe they're in it still? I do still believe they're in it. I do. And could you show me one? Well, the, I couldn't do that. I could not, because I wouldn't be allowed to do that. Who would you be afraid of? Oh, no, you hear me. That's another secret. That's. Well, have you some kind of a relationship with the fairies? Well, they haven't known, and they have not, but, uh, but just the term, they'd just be around where I'd just be. Would you believe that? No. In the night time? In the night time. And you live on your own. Are you I'm afraid of them? Not a bit, no more than I'm afraid of you, no. Do you believe in fairies? asked Peter Pan, while Tinker Bell flitted about the stage as a spot of light. I suppose it's not so much a belief in fairies, whatever they may be, but a belief in the supernatural or some life beyond the physical laws that bind our own bodies that makes people, like the man from Clare we just heard, get the feeling of some external power hovering about in a harmless kind of way, unless, of course, you interfere with it. Anyway, with the help of witnesses to fairy antics and the Department of Irish Folklore in UCD, through the expert knowledge of Barbara O'Flynn, Patricia Lysett and Dohi O'Hogoin, let's look a little closer at the world of the she and kindred spirits. world is not populated only by the human race is found widespread in many cultures throughout the world and in Europe in the European countries um, the, um, uh, th this has become to be understood as to be the fairy people in other words uh, they are not necessarily little little um, leprechauns with um, turned up toes and uh, little red hats and things like that at all but they are in fact a sp the spirit world, the communal spirit world, the first thing about the fairies to remember is that they are a community. They are not individuals, they are a community. And um, they are beside the human race, uh, but they are invisible to us. This is the idea. And they only become visible when they themselves wish to become visible. So that, um, uh, and according to what anthropologists call the mirror theory, that is, that the reality, the social reality of this life is reflected onto ideas of the other world. Uh, so the fairies um, have their tradesmen, have their agriculture, have their various social practices, just like the people of this world have, but they only intervene when it suits them. Now, it's very difficult to say what is the origin of this faith, which is common to all of Europe, um, but which has survived perhaps strongest in Ireland. But it is um, possible to... Um, to see it as part of the general belief that man isn't alone in the world. 
No, uh, there are interpretations given, of course, as to um, deriving from medieval times uh, when, it, when it was felt necessary to explain everything in a Christian context, in the context of the, uh, the worldview of, of Christianity. And uh, then various folk ideas grew up uh, by utilising um, the um, bi biblical sources. For example, in Ireland it's believed that the fairies are the fallen angels. Uh, the fallen angels who weren't really so bad, you see, and who didn't go down all the way and who stopped here. And they were often called in Irish, Angel Anuid, the angels of pride. It's said, you see, that um, one of the angels, um, when God vacated his throne for a while, <laughs> uh, uh, the angel um, went and sat down on his throne and to look out and see all God's kingdom. And um, when God came back and found the bio sitting in his throne, he wasn't so pleased. So he decided to fling him out and every other angel uh, who intended uh, to do likewise. So, uh, however, um, St. Michael the Archangel realised that God was a little bit too severe and he came and he told him uh, that uh, uh, you've been a bit hard on them, uh, take pity on them. Well, God said, I'll tell you what, let them stay as they are now so that those of them who hadn't fallen all the way down stayed here in the set. Now, this uh, is a medieval interpretation based on the Bible, uh, superimposed onto a very more ancient belief. Possibly the most uh, common way in which fairies would be seen to interfere with the everyday lives of ordinary people would be in the case of forts, fairy forts throughout the countryside, and there's something in the region of 35,000, I think, uh, ring forts throughout the country, and it was in these ring forts, of course, that the fairies were normally said to live. And uh, between the ring forts and the fairy paths are passages, the, the routes which the fairies would use to travel from one place to another. It was normally thought that if a house or a cowshed or any type of structure was built on a fairy fort or on a fairy pass or on some place um, where the fairies frequented, that this would not uh, last very long, that the fairies would find some way of expressing their displeasure to the people who had built this structure. And in fact, a very common tradition throughout the country was to build four little piles of stones at the four corners of a proposed dwelling where people were going to build a cow house or a dwelling house, or perhaps four sticks, and they were left uh, there either overnight or for three consecutive nights and if they were untouched after that period of time it was believed that it was safe to build in this particular spot that the fairies wouldn't be offended or that you wouldn't be trespassing in any way on the fairies but there are also there are countless stories about people who either built houses or cow houses on fairy passes or forts or of people who interfered in some way with fairy forts for example plowing up a fairy fort cutting a bush in a fairy fort um, in any way interfering with the fairy fort is believed to be extremely bad luck and there are anecdotes to be found in all parts of the country about men or women who did this and who suffered uh, as a result, who uh, suffered illness or injury of some kind or bad luck, misfortune, as a result of interfering with the fairy fort. And does that, Barbara, now even happen today, that people who build on a fairy fort run into difficulty? It would indeed, yes, uh, very much so. There are stories, for example, of roads being rerouted. There was a case in Mayo in the 1960s, I think, of a road being rerouted because the workmen in the area refused to uh, interfere with the fairy fort in the course of building the road. There's another road I know in the Midlands where a fairy fort was actually destroyed in the course of the construction of a new road, and several accidents have occurred at that particular spot since then. 
and the normal explanation locally is that these accidents have occurred at that particular spot because there was a fairy fort there which was destroyed in the making of the road. You also have the business about fairy forts told in connection with certain industries in the country that have failed. It has been said that certain factories have been built on uh, sites where fairy forts previously existed and because of the fact that the fairy forts were destroyed in the construction of these sites, the, the factories or the companies went to the wall and that was the reason for their uh, demise. Barbara, what is the actual real origin of the fairy forts, ring forts? They were normally early Christian dwellings, just farmers who lived in early Christian times, and these were simply the farmsteads and the homesteads that they had. Uh, they possibly had uh, slight defensive properties as well, and that many of them have this high bank, or two or three high banks in some cases, around the actual uh, dwelling place in the middle. And this would possibly be to keep uh, wild animals, I would imagine, away from the stock and so on that would have been inside in the actual fort itself. So, in fact, then these forts had no real connection with fairy folk. Well, uh, probably it depends on your definition, I suppose, of fairy folk. Uh, no, the, the generally speaking, uh, generally speaking, the, the accepted explanation for the fairy forts that they were early Christian dwellings. Uh, so oh, it's impossible to prove, I mean, or to disprove connection between fairies and ring forts. To say that they hadn't any connection with the fairies is to say that fairies didn't exist, and I would be loath to say that in my position. So uh, I, I'd find it very, very difficult to answer that, really. People long ago give great, they give great interest to fairies and ghosts. They used to give in to them and believe in them. I think they were genuine. Oh, they used, and they knew the fairies were going that time, and they were going at that time. And people used to see them. There wasn't a house down there now, uh, down below Jack McKay's there on the roadside. It's a stable now. And there was a family living there, and they were living, they were living generation after generation for years. But this travelling man, he was going around and he was a piper by trade. I think he told you that before. And he, that was his way of life, to be playing the pipes at a wedding or at any sports or anything. He'd be invited and they'd pay him for the night. Like um, like any musician or not, you know, that'd be employed for the night. But when I came to the door one night down there, and he had no fixed residence for going from place to place, but he was, they were keeping him for the night. And he, the man came for him and told him that he was wanted in a house up there above Malasakiri somewhere, that there was a wedding there, and that they wanted him for music for the night, for the pipes. So he says he'd go, but sure, he said, won't you leave me back safe and sound in the morning? That's what he used to say, do you know? That if he did this, promise that, he would trust in your way. So he said, oh, of course, he says, I will. Well, that was a living man, you know. They couldn't come themselves. They sent a living man for them, he said, to do the work for them. And I will, he says, leave him back again. He says, if I sound all right, so I would. He, so he went. And the, the house was full of people. And they were dancing and eating and drinking and the best of fun and all that kind of thing. And uh, he thought he knew them. And they were talking Irish and English and mixture and Sean and Meal and Gage and more and all the classic thing and he thought they were very familiar voices and he thought he knew them and they seemed like as if he did know them and they knew his name and talking to him the same as anyone 
So for it was time for coming home then and all over, they paid him for the night, whatever it was, and they told him to spin that before 12 o'clock in the day. So he came home and he was tired and he went to bed and he forgot he slept the morning, but when he woke up it was after 12 o'clock and he put his hand in his pocket for the money and it was nothing but a couple of balls of asses when you were. Those spirits now, they were beyond the, uh, I suppose, the powers of ordinary beings. They must have worried people. How could they cope with them or deal with them or did they come to grips or come to terms with them in any way? Well, they came to terms with them in much the same way that um, human psychology dictates that um, that people should, um, should deal with um, beings who are uh, suspect uh, and... and um, like wild animals and so on, in the sa- you know, in, although not exactly in the same means, practical means. But um, one way uh, of of overcoming, um, you see, since the fairies are um, living beside us, and since they can determine when they intervene into our life, um, we are slightly um, upset about them. Even though uh, they often can be friendly and often just want, uh, they might come into this world. Uh, a fairy might appear and ask for uh, the loan of a cooking pot or for some farm implement or something like that. But uh, we also are afraid that it might be malignant, you see, and particularly some aspects of the fairies, like the shock troops of the fairies, who are called in Irish and sluishi. Uh, these are the group that when you're out late at night walking along the road, they might pass you by and take you away with them, that uh, they're out to seize people and take them away into their world. Now, uh, which is, of course, a form of Hades or the world of the dead. The um, <coughs> the, the the ways in which people have of overcoming <coughs> them um, reflect again realities of this world. Disguise is one. Um, if you're out late at night, you see one of the pop- the most popular ways of um, disguising yourself from spirits is to turn your coat inside out. Uh, so that you won't be recognised the next time they come. They see the they same mark Michael's label on the inside. <laughs> they put their mark on you the first time, and and uh, then you see that they, they they come to take you the second time. But if your coat is turned inside out, they won't identify you. And um, <coughs> with regard to the fairies, the the very peculiar custom you might say that um, uh, was in Ireland uh, and in other places as well of little boys being dressed as little girls until they were let's say seven years of age. Uh, this is a way of disguising uh, the little boys uh, to protect them from the fairies because it was believed that fairies particularly um, sought um, men uh, even though there were other traditions about them taking women after childbirth and so on if a woman had died in their world they might want a woman to nurse a child uh, but um, the this is a very interesting idea because uh, it was believed traditionally that a child had um, three parts of the father and only one part of the mother and the qualification that the fairies needed to go back into heaven, you see, uh, was uh, that they needed to have human blood in their veins. When God threw the fairies out of heaven, according to the myth, um, they, uh, this, there were a lot of seats empty. And so he created the human race then to fill the seats. Um, and the, the qualification was to have red blood in your veins, but fairies have white blood in their veins. 
That's why you often notice if you see white liquid on the ground in the morning, people will say that that is a result of a fairy fight having taken place, that two of the the groups of shock troops of the fairies met and they fought it out there and the blood is left there as a result. Well, then you see, to take away a little boy, there is a sort of a logic behind this, if you like. Uh, To take away a little boy rather than a girl into their world means that uh, they would breed human blood faster. (laughs) (laughs) White blood, I presume, is it? Uh, uh, Well, well, you see, they have white blood, but they need human red blood. So the the myth goes. Um, It's it's interesting, actually, that um, the the Bible should be used in the Middle Ages to explain it. There was another belief also in other countries, although not so much in Ireland, that um, uh, the fairies are children of Adam and Eve. Uh, but they are children of Adam at any rate. They're children of Adam with a woman whom he was first married to before Eve. And this is um, an imaginative interpretation of a reference in the uh, book of Genesis where it said, where God says to Adam that he now has, when he gives him Eve, he says, you now have bones of your bones and flesh of your flesh. And people say, well then, this might suggest that he might have had another woman before that. So that God came one day to visit Adam and Eve, and Adam had these children hidden, the children of the first wife hidden, and God said, may they remain hidden always. And that's why the fairies are hidden away, you see, from us. Anyway, that particular thing about the fairies now taking the children, that was an old superstition of what was they said that the fairies could take a male child out of, a, out of the cradle and leave some imitation thing in his place like a child, you know. So and to prevent that, then you have a... To prevent that, I know this part of it anyway, to prevent that, they... Uh, the, the, Young, the goss, the male children, gossons, were dressed in red petticoats, in petticoats, until they were fairly big lumps of gossons. I you saw know, until they'd be two I or three them. or four. They'd be, I mean, maybe seven. I saw them. And, and you mean they actually might be going to school with petticoats? I saw them they? going to school. All to prevent yes, the fairies from taking them. To prevent the fairies from taking them. When you were dressed as a girl, you were safe, you see. No, I won't ask you this, but do you remember if you were dressed as a girl? I shouldn't ask you, I suppose. I don't. No, I think I I put on the breeches about five-year-old or that way. But I saw them at maybe seven or eight-year-old. I saw maybe seven or eight-year-old, a big hulk of a lad, going to school with the red petticoat on from your research now, uh, did you discover why had people the need of fairies, so to speak? Well, why do people have the need for a belief in any type of existence, uh, other world existence, or a belief in the existence of some other dimension outside of themselves? I think that you could ask the same question about people's religious beliefs, for example. It was simply a way of uh, ordering your environment and coping with your own experience and with your everyday life. And it does seem to be the case that people do have a certain need for a belief in something outside of themselves and in some kind of 
um, possibly superior power to themselves, some type of, of other world existence. And to think that the fairies are simply another expression of that need. So nowadays that uh, belief has got less and less. Has it almost disappeared? The belief is still surprisingly strong and prevalent throughout the country, I would say. Uh, personally, I've been very surprised myself when travelling throughout the country and talking to people at how many people believe in the existence of the fairies. Not that they believe in the present-day existence of the fairies. Most people would tell you that the fairies don't exist any longer, but that years ago, or when they were young, that the fairies very definitely did exist. And the fairies obviously were very much a reality for people in days gone by and very much a part of their everyday lives and not the kind of romanticised about lives version that we have of fairies uh, nowadays. They were, as I say, very much part and parcel of everyday life for people. While fairies were well known for their dancing and musical expertise, it wasn't unknown for them either to play football in places as far apart as Dublin and Mayo. To go to the pub late at night and in the summer's evening and he had to feed the meadow, you know. And he was afraid that cattle would be trespassing in the meadow. And about one o'clock at night he said to his sisters, I'll go back to the field and have a look at the meadow, see what cattle be trespassing at. The neighbour's cattle might come in. So he went to the field and the cattle were all there. The land was all right, there was no cattle trespassing in the meadow. And he laying down the fence and then he was had a view into the opposite field. And there was a fourth not far away. Oh, only just about a quarter of a mile from, not less. And he saw the men there kicking football. And he used to see what the moonlight was a fine, it was a fine moonlight night and came. And he saw them, with the shadow of the moon, and he saw the ball going up and coming down, and they thudded the ball. And he used to hear them clapping hands, and he used to hear them saying, and I if he yawn, and if he yawn, no mosh, no forek, and shaw, and who, and he used to, <laughs> he used to hear them shouting. Would bravo for one another, you know, when they'd win, and when they get a goal or a pint, like no, they would uh, anywhere. And he was watching them there for a full hour, laying on the wall, and enjoying it. And he thought first that they were real people, and how would they be there? He said in the moonlight, when they wouldn't be in the daytime. And he went home, and he was somehow or another he was. Like puzzled about it, you know. He wasn't sure like there were fairies. And that how could living people be out with the moon kicking football? But he got to know there were fairies, that there weren't living people. That was a fort they were in. He was telling this yarn anyway. I thought he was coming back across the green hollows one night. A lovely moonlight night. He said, I said, it was great. And he said, I heard a lot of little uh, shouting, you know, going on. And he says, the loveliest match he says I ever seen in my life was getting played in there in, 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 in our Nick Harper's field there. Oh, he says, the man there, he says, there was playing a lovely match, all the Gaelic, you know. 
and she says, see you, and I slid down beside the ditch and I was watching them. So I must have watched them, say, for a half an hour or more. And this fella come up and he fouled other fella, you know. And he said, that's a foul, he says, you see, I couldn't tell me bloody face. And he says, so we're gone like a light, the fairies. While Banshee might literally be translated as Fairy Woman, Patricia Lysett, who is an expert on the origin and function of this creature, does not classify her as a real fairy. Well, she's not really, according to genuine tradition from all over Ireland, uh, while the people aren't very clear as to who she is or where she came from, nevertheless, they are clear in one point, and that is that she's not one of the fairies. The fairies, you see, are social beings. She's a, she is a solitary being, and uh, the word she, uh, I think, denotes rather her mystical quality, her mystical nature, her otherworldliness. And I suppose one could translate it much better just by saying that she's another world woman, not one of the fairy people at all. And this is where I think we would um, take issue with uh, some 19th century writers like Yeats and McNally and uh, others uh, who have said more or less that she is uh, a fairy woman. That is not the genuine tradition. It's quite clear from the traditional material she wasn't considered to be one of the fairies at all. And really her behaviour didn't more or less coincide with fairy law or fairyology law, if you want to call it that. Uh, she, her her manifestation, her appearance, and her function were entirely different. Now, she, as I've said, she's a female being. She's considered to be a female being. Uh, she's considered to follow certain families, and her function in tradition is to uh, be, uh, to forebode death in certain families. That is, she cries, which is the cornerstone of the, of the tradition, a crying female solitary being who is a foreboder of death in certain families. Now, by certain families uh, is meant that uh, she doesn't necessarily follow everyone. In the strict sense, it is the, the indigenous Irish families. But into that, we would put as well uh, Norman families, Viking families, in other words, families who would assimilate very well. But there's a very clear uh, dividing line about the 17th century. Like the, the Williamites and the Old Cromwellites, uh, they seem to be excluded. So there is there is a, a very distinct dividing line there, which is, in, which is interesting from a social history point of view. And she doesn't really follow these people at all. Uh, so uh, the fact that she might follow, let's say, uh, the McMahons in a certain area doesn't necessarily mean she follows all the McMahons everywhere. Perhaps that was meant initially. But this gives an idea of status, you see, that families followed were in some way special, that they were um, the O's, one of the O's and the Max. They were the genuine Irish families of old stock. And this would apply to, to the old Norman families as well, like the Powers and the Nugents and Nagels and others. She would follow those too, which is a way of saying that they were regarded as being Irish. Well, you have done a lot of research into the origins and functions of the Banshee, Patricia. Well, would it be fair to ask if you personally ever heard the Banshee? Well, uh, I am also a lawyer, and I suppose I'll, I should phrase this very carefully because I'm always asked this question. 
And I think the way I've put it, I'll put it is this, that as a result of my research, I personally have never heard anything which, I would, which would lead me to believe that I've heard the Banshee. Nevertheless, you believe that the Banshee does exist or did exist. Nevertheless, I believe that other people believe that the Banshee exists and that they have heard her. And I have studied the traditions as I have found them. I've done, I did my doctoral thesis on it. And uh, there is definitely a very, very strong tradition in the past and in the present that this being was there. And you can trace it back in time. It has changed as it has proceeded. It's always been connected with death, a different type of death. I think the function of it is, uh, even though it's connected with death and with the dying, it's always for a dying person. Nevertheless, I think it functions for the living. It functions for the people who are to live on. It gives the people who are expecting the death, it tells them that death is now inevitable because her families would follow. The tradition tells you this, that um, they felt that the person couldn't die until the banshee was heard. Then you see, once it was heard, they knew the person was fated to die. There was nothing more could be done. They couldn't blame themselves. Well, maybe if we brought them to the hospital, maybe if we'd done something else for them, maybe we weren't good to them, you know. Once, that's, once the banshee is heard, they're fated to die. So I think it did help people to cope with death before it actually happened. You know, and in a way they were sort of getting the upper hand on death. They knew it was going to happen. It wasn't going to steal up on them, sort of thing. Now there's another aspect to it, which is important too. In that, when people left to go to America, in particular, um, when they were leaving home, I mean, they always said they would come back. You know, we'll come back. But very few of them did in reality. And in a way, it was a kind of death. You know, it was a kind of permanent departing, if you like. Nevertheless, uh, the tradition does point to quite a body of tradition that says that when members of the family were dying abroad the cry would be heard in Ireland. So even though they didn't know that the person was dead, nevertheless, they were expecting something to have happened somewhere, perhaps abroad. And then, let's say, three weeks later, by the time the post came round, they got the letter to say the person had died abroad at the same time. People liked to know when their relatives were dying. And it sort of was a way of keeping in touch, if you like. So, like, tradition, in a way, demanded the impossible. You know, they wanted something that was even better than the telegraph or anything like that to tell them when a person was going to die abroad. And I think they succeeded as they had the death messenger, the banshee. And uh, it functioned very positively, I think, for the living. You see, we tend to associate weight customs and the, the keening and all that sort of thing with the dead in a way, you know? But I think all these things really were for the living. They were for the people who were to live on afterwards to enable them and the community to cope with death. While they were ostensibly for the dead person or the dying person, nevertheless, I think, when you look at it carefully, they functioned the people who were to live on, to keep sort of the world going around, you know, and help them to cope with, with death. Well, Pat, are you still hopeful that one day you will actually hear the voice of the Banshee? <laughs> I have no great desire, in fact, to hear the voice of the Banshee at all, you know. Uh, I, think, um, I think I'm very happy with what I have done, you know, and uh, certainly I don't think I would, would wish to do, wish to, because uh, I would, I suppose, have to feel that somebody belonging to me was going to die. And uh, I don't know that I would want to be warned like that at all.
The stray sonata of the Fogian Marul is a very well-known and long-established notion in this country. It's thought that the fairies put a spell on a piece of earth and that whoever inadvertently steps on it loses his way and cannot find an exit from wherever he is, whether it's field or wood or bog, until the fairies get tired of their little game. And it's also believed that one can counter the spell by turning one's coat inside out. I remember to be at a dance. Uh, is there any last to mention the house? Joe Darcy's. And uh, Patty Joe Pryor and myself decided to go home around half one of the dance. And it was a, a powerful bright night, a lovely night. Now, we took the country for it. And uh, there was a fellow in it and he says to me, he's dead and better since. He says, Leslie, he says, don't light the wrong fancy foley. He says, move on quick, dapples were stored from it last Sunday night. And he says, you, if he'll be looking after dapples. But in any case, we packed by fancy folies and walked out in the field. And then she went astray in the field. And the next thing was surrounded with trees. This is Irish now, one took but. And the trees was going up that tight. That I thought it was going to be squeezed between them. And I was travelling like all that. And your man after me walking. Now, were you going through a field that you knew before? Why wouldn't I? Went through it several times. But and there were never trees there then? Not at all. Oh, God, not at all. No trees at all. Well, we travelled away. And we travelled and travelled round the whole country and we didn't know where we were. We're gonna stay clear and complete. And we come near Hand the Ballamore Road and still we couldn't get to it. Whatever was wrong with us. We couldn't get to it. And finally we landed out on the hilly road at four o'clock in the morning, Joseph. And we were heading up for Charlton's instead of coming down home into them Shanba. And um, we met the, these Tommy Burton now and the sister was on the uh, coming from the dance. And Gustav Butler and Mrs. McLaughlin out there. And Tommy Byrne says to me, he says, in the name of God, he says, what's wrong? Where are you going to? Thanks for God's sake, we got on the road, we're going home. And Tommy says, you're going for Charlton's Crafter. Come back. Come back with the man, you come down the road. And Jim Collins says, after coming up from a dance so bad, at the end of his time, he's going to, he got lads, he says, you're talking it out. It's, it, it was bright. And so they, we didn't talk it out, we left at half one. In the name of God, where were you? He says, he, we went to three or something. Couldn't get over where, whatever happened to us. Well, he says, God is, he says, take a time for a minute. He brought out a cup of water. And the first supper what they got, I knew where I was. Every house was the wrong direction, Joseph. Johnny Lee's was the far side. It was gone different when we were going up during the night, you know. And Master Dodd's up there. We could see him, we knew where it was. And I gave the, most, uh, the cup over to your man, he took a drink and were sound. Well, that experience. Did you have any drink taken that night? Not right? a tint. Uh, drink? Oh, drink? Mr. God, yeah, where would you get drink? And maybe if you had a girl with you coming from the dance, <laughs> it mightn't have happened. It mightn't, because it mightn't go that way at all, you know. And we'd have to go a different direction. <laughs> Right. And were you scared about that the next day when you thought about it? I was it? tired. I was worn out. I can tell you, don't to be truthful. And with respect to the company, the shirt was stuck to me back, travelling with sweat. What I lost that night. And the moon shining bright on us. But did you ever figure out afterwards uh, what the cause of it was? Well, it was supposed to be a stray sod. The claim longer that was babies born, like, and it was buried here and there in fields, Joseph. Did you ever know that? You didn't. That was written that that's how the stray sods came. 
But we've never learned with the Sodzin, you know. That's but they call it the Fogin Marul. Well, it could be the Fogin. Well, that's Irish now you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And did any other people around have the same experience? Well, we had that experience, and it was us, several people in our country when they stayed. And some of them had us worse winter. Neighbours that they weren't talking to at all were sitting in that, that neighbour's fire the next morning after travelling the country. And if that man come out, he'd dash his brains out if he got him about his house. He didn't know where the man didn't know where he was sitting after travelling the whole night. in the field, crossing the land in the night. I went in the field one night, and the military went in, in the field. I, everything got black to me. I couldn't even go back to the wall that I crossed. And I was going up and down, and I met freaks ahead that I knew so well, but they were on the other side of the wall, you know. They weren't the reeks that I knew. I met bushes, and I know the curves of, dr of rivers and drains, and still, I couldn't come out. It took me till about two o'clock in the morning before I sat, I sat down and I s waited there until this fog went off of my brain and I came home there. And have you any idea what caused the fog well, to I come in your brain? Well, I could not tell you what something come... And when this w was gone off of me, when I, I, swore, I swear the thing fell back off of me like you were throwing over caught back off of you and everything opened up. Well, the next day then, did you go back to that field again? Or I the next time you went there, did you notice any difference? Then? I didn't notice any. Oh, not. It was perfect as it I ever saw when it, the Papanites. It was some of my own fields that I was within. Did that kind of thing now happen to other people as well? A lot of, I know lots of people that were out the most of nights and they couldn't make out their home. There was a... There was a man in this village one time and he was he came in and he was out all night. His man's name was Clamor Laden. And there was there was a man up in the village going with pigs to the you know, the fair early about three o'clock or four. And he, he he was shaving himself and the door was closed and the boat that had there was an axle of a carrying in it. And when this man came to the door, he thought it was a fairy house. But he was going to go in any which was very but he came running as we'll call it and hit the door with his shoulder and he put the axle in the door across to the other door and he said, I'm within now in spite of the dibble and all that's in the hill of me, he said. Fairy lights, Willie the Wisp, Jack of the Lantern. The work of the little people could be. And I tell you what I've seen lights in my time travelling. Now lights. It's an unusual thing to see a light. And if you kept watching a light like that at night, could land beside you if you wouldn't move away. And not keep not to keep watching it. Now where would the light be? In the sky or on the uh, on the ground, the field? on the land. It used to be in yeah. bogs and here and there. And it was an order thing for going about to a light. You see, you meet me and I say, oh, there was a light there such a night. And that light would move on and move on. And if you kept watching it, I seen this one night, I seen a light coming across the bog. And we're leaving out a game of cards out, Packy Foley's. 
and this light landed across and we stood watching it and it come up beside us and mind you when it was coming near hand we soon dispersed there was an awful rattle come overhead and we cleared for home anyway and that was even now before the time of the flying saucers oh it was <laughs> oh it was there was no flying saucers at that time <laughs> that was the flying light I say Except for Lysena or fairy fords, nothing in Ireland is more closely associated with the fairy folk than are certain types of tree. The thorn bush is supposed to be under fairy protection and has been very prominent in song and verse. The fairy thorn was written by Samuel Ferguson, and this is the voice of Pori Cullum reading it. from the weary spinning wheel for your father's on the hill and your mother is asleep come up above the crags and we'll dance a highland reel around the fairy thorn on the steep at Anna Grace's door twas thus the maidens cried three merry maidens fair in kirtles of the green and Anna laid the rock and the weary wheel aside the fairest of the four I ween. There glancing through the glimmer of the quiet eve, away in milky wavings of neck and ankle bare, the heavy sliding stream in its sleepy song, the lee, and the crags in the ghostly air. And linking hand in hand and singing as the go, the maids along the hillside have ta'en their fearless way till they come to where the rowan trees and lonely beauty grow beside the fairy hawthorn grey. The hawthorn stands between the ashes tall and slim, like matron with her twin granddaughters at her knee. The rowan berries cluster o'er her low head grey and dim, in ruddy kisses sweet to see. The merry maidens four have ranged them in a row, between each lovely couple, a stately rowan stem, and away in maidens' wavings, like singing birds. Well, Dahi, one other little question now. I'll have to ask you this, and you needn't answer me truthfully. Do you actually believe in fairies? Uh, no, I, I don't believe in, in uh, any physical reality um, of the um, the good people. <laughs> and I use that word carefully rather than use the word fairies. But uh, um, I believe in their reality to the extent that um, they are real in the minds of a lot of people, and they were real in the minds of a great deal of people in the past, so that psychologically they have a lot to teach us about the way the people view their environment and view the world. So mentally you have a certain belief in that. <laughs> well, no, no, not, no intellectual belief, but uh, to have a philosophical belief is one thing, 
but if you are told not to do a certain thing because it might have supernatural repercussions, you're a bit afraid to do it at the same time. So I don't think I'd like to um, dig up a fairy moat, for example, or cut down a fairy tree. I would intellectually not be afraid to do it, but emotionally, I'm an Irish countryman, you see. <laughs>